If, uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, and we will get there uh, probably in about the middle of the sermon today, 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll get there. Um, I want to just uh, let you know today that the sermon is going to be real clear. In fact, I want to tip my hand up front and let you know that I want to challenge everybody to serve today. This may not be a good sermon, but it's going to be clear. And we want to challenge you to serve. For some of you, we're just fanning the flames, uh, encouraging you to not grow weary in doing good. You've been serving. You've discovered your gifts and you're using that. And I just want to encourage you in that. But for some of us, we're, on the, you know, we're, we're in the bleachers and we're not out there yet. We're not serving. And with a new year, it's still, I, I guess, I, I, I think we can stay happy new year still on uh, January 20th. But um, even... Uh, I have decided uh, prayerfully to tackle something new, to sit on a board of a new organization that's fighting uh, human trafficking here in Mississippi. And I love the people that God is bringing together, the women and the men that will be on all sides of this, on the compassion side and the justice side. And I know some of you, man, you are, you're, you are in this and you've got something that God has called you to that's prompting you uh, like me or something very different. And so the challenge today is to serve. But before we get there, I want to challenge us to see. Challenge us, you and me, to see. You're out on the town. In fact, you're at the new cultivation food hall at the district in Eastover. It's your 22nd wedding anniversary. You are with the wife that you love so much. And just beaming with love, you look at her at one point in the evening and you tell her that she today looks like the same woman that you met some 24 years ago. And then you wait for her to say the same thing back to you. And you wait. And she does it. She loves you. She also loves the truth. And she loved it when I had hair. Let me ask you today, when you see your person or you're with your people, you see your people, what do you see? What do you see in people, the people closest to you that God's called you to love? And outside of that realm, outside of the norm, what do you see when you see people? In the most famous sermon ever preached, Matthew 5, 8, Jesus made this statement that a lot of you know. You don't have have to be a Christian. You don't have to be a regular churchgoer. You've probably heard this. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. And there's this promise, this idea, this invitation that, that we would... We would, be, we would need a holy heart, a pure heart to see a holy God. And can I tell you today, I want both. I want my heart to be as pure as it can be, and I want to see God. I have an um, ophthalmologist friend who talks about that uh, real fascinating insight that the, the most common place for nearsightedness is in New York City. Anyone want to guess uh, why that would be? All the skyscrapers, all the tall buildings... Uh, Kind of, kind of make it so that the residents there are confined in their eyesight. There, there's a limited frame of vision, and so it's not often that they stare long distances. Uh, the concrete and all that makes you look at what's just in front of you. Spiritual nearsightedness is a reality for me. How about you? Spiritual nearsightedness is when I just can't see the way Jesus wants me to see. I can't see that he's God. My heart is not pure. My vision is dulled. And when spiritual nearsightedness affects me, I don't see what I need to see. I do not see how far that I can see. And probably most importantly, I don't see who that I can see. And spiritual nearsightedness is like that. And I know from painful and personal testimony, I can tell you that it happens to me because of sin, because of my sin. 
I look and I see sometimes my sin staring back at me. And I can also look at this world. And don't you grow weary sometimes looking at this world with the school shootings and the terrorist threats and the amber alerts and all that is happening and you ache and there are just times where spiritual nearsightedness overwhelms me. I stand on my tiptoes and I cannot see heaven. It's just too much to look past. And We are called. We're called to see as God wants us to see. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. That is a promise. In fact, it's, Jesus connects it straight up with your happiness, your sense of well-being. There's a, another famous phrase, again, that you don't have to be a Christian or a ch- regular churchgoer to know. It says this, that we live by faith, not by sight. Any, anybody want to search this? It's 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We live by faith, not by sight. And here's the thing about me. Some of you kind of think I'm a, a risk taker. We planted a church, that's a big risk. Uh, sometimes I, I do take risks, but confessionally, I'll tell you, so often, I want to know where I'm going to land before I make a jump. Anybody like me? Like some of you really are that way. I'm that way. I want to know, hey, is this going to be firm? Is it going to be solid? Is it going to be safe? I mean, I don't want to live by faith. I want to like see. That's what I want. I want to be able to see what the next step is. Here's one of God's beautiful creatures. This is a whale from the Pacific Blue. We used to live out that way and every so often... We'd go looking for these things. You, you can never tell. There's some experts on the shore that tell you the seasons and the circumstances where they're going to, uh, you, you'll be able to see them. Most of their hours of every day, these big, beautiful sea creatures, the whale, they are spent underwater. But it is above the water, the air that is above the water that sustains their life. And you and I are similar creatures. We live down here. Most of our time, it's down here, but it is life up there that sustains us, that we rely on. We are called to walk by faith and to not walk by sight. Jesus invites us and He invites you. I love the story of Peter. In fact, if you want to turn in your Bibles, we'll get it in a minute, but 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to look today in the middle of the message. But Jesus invites a fisherman to follow Him. And you probably, a lot of you know this story, He asked him to put down his net to follow. Have you noticed that? To start something new, a new venture, a new endeavor, you got to put something old down to begin something new. You got to drop something. You got to let go. And for a lot of us, that's the, that's the hardest part. I've I preached this before, but it, uh, if you bowl, and I understand Fondren, it's a secret. I maybe get in trouble here, but uh, Fondren's getting a bowling alley up here. That's what I've heard from, yeah, seriously. But um, anyway, we're looking for a few venture capitalists. It's actually what I'm doing on the side. No, no, I'm serious about the bowling alley. But anyway, let's say you're bowling and you let go of the ball. How many of you, when you bowl, you talk to the ball after you let it go? Like you cheer for it, right? You, like as if that's going to do something to help the trajectory of the ball, to hit, hit pins down. It's going to do nothing, but you wouldn't know from looking at you, right? And it's just hard. It's just hard to let something go. And Peter was called and he had to let something go. He says, Jesus has put down your nets. And really putting down the net was probably the easiest thing that Peter had to do. A lot of you know there was a boat and a storm and there was, um, there was an invitation that Jesus uh, invited the disciples to and Peter was the one who famously got out of the boat and there for a moment he was beginning to see what Jesus wanted him to see, which is what? The best life possible for you and me is a life of faith. 
It's not always the things that we see. And we need to see the way He sees. And we live life where we learned it from our childhood. Ready, set, go. And with Jesus, more times than not, it's ready, go, set. And Jesus invites him on the water. Peter gets out of the boat. And you remember this story, don't you? And he walks on the water. But he begins to sink with what happened when he took his eyes off Jesus. Do you ever lose sight of what really matters? I'm, I'm telling you, confessionally, I do. And when I have the moments, correction, some of you bring correction to my life. Sometimes it's my wife and the strength and beauty and power of the Holy Spirit to bring correction into my life. But I know when I sit and I, I, I'm still and I know that He is God and He brings loving correction into my life, I know that I've lost sight of what's important because I've taken my eyes off Jesus. Peter gets, he, he give him credit, he gets out of the boat. And here's what I want to say to some of you today. All of you, but a couple of you probably need to hear this. There's a lot of there's a lot of boats. There's a lot of boats that we like. There's boats that we feel stuck in. There's boats that we enjoy because of our comfort. There's boats that people keep us in. There's boats for just for default mode. We just stay in these boats. But a life of faith is so much better. Years ago. I was on a trip with young students. It was a fun trip, many different cities, and it was really just a great time. One of the young kids was one of my own. And we, had, we visited great places. We stayed at pretty cool spots, but not one night. One night, y'all, we stayed in a rough hotel. I mean, no fooling. TVs were chained to the wall. Cigarette smoke just was all up in the air. You would not find this hotel on Travelocity. And there we were in this place. Susan heard about it. She knows I'm a germ phobe. Jesus and I deal with that phobia of mine. And she's like, you know, Robert, keep your shoes on, your clothes on, just sleep on the top of the blanket. And I got out of the room for a couple of hours and went to the pool, not to swim in that pool, but just to get away from the kids and the smell of smoke. And, uh, and I went out and sat by this pool that I wasn't going to swim in, but I noticed a couple of guys and we started talking and they were very open to talk to me with every drink of alcohol. They got more and more open to talk to me. One of them lifted up his uh, shirt and showed me, uh, I guess what used to be an armpit. And he said, man, my, my old lady stabbed me. She got me good. And the other guy, not to be outdone, he lifted up his shirt and showed a, a bullet hole in his. And I lifted up my pant leg, not to be outdone. I said, bike wreck, fourth grade, right there <laughs> on the knee. And they laughed at me and they offered me something to help with my pain. And truthfully, I kid you not, they were uh, drug dealers and they were running from the police. And more and more, they began to share their story with me. I didn't take any of their medicine, any of their drugs they offered me. I said, man, I, when I take aspirin, I need a designated driver. I'm just, you know, I'm not that guy at all. And I just listened to their story. And their eyes were aglaze and they were drug dealers on the run. And at one point, they opened up. You know, I couldn't help as we were talking I couldn't help but think about their childhood. Couldn't help but think about maybe what went wrong. Couldn't help but think about the negative influences that probably were predominant in them and the absence of a good influence in their lives. And one of them at one point, seriously drunk and probably high, looked to me and said, what do you think we should do? I held, held off the fact that I was a, a minister. He said, what do you think we should do? I said, first of all, don't, don't kill me. Secondly, I told them, running and hiding is not living. That there could be a future for you. I sort of hinted at what line of work I might be in. But I said, there's a future for me. 
And who you are today doesn't have to be who you are tomorrow. In fact, look at this big truth here. Uh, back, I think, before that. What you see is your past. Jesus, what Jesus sees is your future. That's so true. We twisted and distorted what the gospel is. You know, it's not a religious system. It, it, it's not. It's this, it truly is a walk into freedom. And Jesus wants you to see you like He sees you. Peter was invited in. You know, Peter saw an awful lot. He saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He saw Jesus take a boy's sack lunch and multiply it to feed thousands of hungry people. He saw Jesus take mud and put it on a blind man's eye and bring healing and help to them. Peter saw it all, but even then, just like he did on the water that day, aren't we stubborn as humans? I mean, aren't we stubborn? And Peter once again took his eyes off Jesus. He lost sight of what, who is most important. Look at what it says in the Gospels. It says this about an angry mob. An angry mob, it says that he's with Jesus. He's with Jesus. And look, Peter, Peter says, I don't know the man. I don't know him. I don't know, I don't know him. Peter's greatest failure was this betrayal. I don't even know who he is. Now, have you ever faced an angry mob? Honestly, I haven't. I'm just I'm going to guess. You know, several hundred folks in the room, balcony as well. I, I I don't know that you've anybody in the room has faced an angry mob. I mean, I guess if I stood here and said "Go Rams," uh, that that could happen, right? But when you face a mob, there's a mob in the Superdome. They get kicked off here soon, right? That's going to be a mob down there. I had an offer to go. It was four hundred dollars. I declined to be with you today, and I'm not bitter about that. But that, that, that's a mob. Have you ever, have you ever, uh, I love y'all, have you ever faced a mob? I mean, Peter does. And I don't, you know, I don't know, who am I to judge? You know, I'm the preacher sitting on the stool today, but like, wh- who am I to judge what I, would, what I would do with an angry mob? But I know this, I know that in this moment when Jesus needed him the most, Peter was not there. And look at this, look at this response. After Peter said, I don't know the man, to the angry mob, Scripture tells us this, Jesus, we don't have that important word, that name on the screen, but Jesus looked straight at Peter. Can I tell you what I know to be true? Peter didn't look at Jesus. And I can't tell you how beautiful this is. Any sports fans, any basketball fans, will stay on that topic. 1982, you got to be old to remember this, but in 1982, I was home. I was watching the final four, actually the final game of the final four, and watching Georgetown play North Carolina. There was a couple of guys on that team, uh, Michael Jordan, James Worthy, some of those guys on the North Carolina team. And on Georgetown's team, they had a youngster named Freddie Brown, and Freddie Brown got the inbounds path with just in, inbounds path pass with just a, a few seconds left on the clock. And I remember this like it was just a year ago, and he takes the inbound pass with a chance to drive down and win the game. So he makes a pass to an open player. The problem is the open player wasn't a Georgetown player. It was James Worthy of North Carolina. And right there around half court with the sports world watching, some of you remember this? I see some Hoops fans. Freddie Brown makes the pass to James Worthy, and his mistake was seen by millions of millions of people. And his mistake, that mistake alone, lost in the game and lost in the national championship. 
And this youngster for Georgetown, 1982, collapsed on the bench with a towel around him and was weeping. I lost the game. I mean, it was just what a debacle. You never want to be him. And I remember this, and I'm drawn, I'm drawn to men who aren't afraid to express themselves, to love their wives and kids, and to love men, and to, to, to um, hug. And when a big, burly, masculine man like Coach John Thompson at Georgetown did this, I'll probably never forget it. And he went to his player, who was like a son to him, and embraced him, and said, it's okay. And later I learned, I did some lip reading that night, like some of you, if you're old and you remember, but I, I remember reading about it. And he said, this isn't who you are and this isn't final. There is so much more for you. And that is the gospel story. Whether you see it on a basketball court or God help us to see it in our families and in our lives as we circle up and get in groups and love each other and listen to stories and speak truth back into each other. This failure of yours, it is not final. In fact, it could be fertilizer to move you to the future. And how beautiful is the gospel story? Again, we're funny about religion. We mess it up. But this is such a beautiful story. Redemption dripping from every page, every story, every real life. And God, help us, help us to see it in our lives as well. He's not done with you. And that was Jesus. And Jesus, you'll remember in John, they had breakfast on the beach after the resurrection. How cool is that? Breakfast on the beach, that's good enough. Breakfast on the beach after the resurrection, that's awesome. Breakfast on the beach after the resurrection, when Jesus says, hey, invite you to that, because He's not going to leave you on the bench with the towel over your head crying and saying, this is all I will be known for. In fact, Jesus puts him in the game. And in Acts chapter 3, one of the greatest non-Jesus sermons ever preached. This will never happen to me. I'd get proud if it did. But Peter preached. Peter preached. And 3,000 people saw what he saw that day. Amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind. But what now I see. You see, here's this quote. If we can, I think I'm out of order. When Jesus looks at you, he sees you and he sees all the people you could love if you could get your eyes off you. That's not too succinct, but let's say it again. When Jesus looks at you, he sees you and he sees all the people you could love if you get your eyes off you. Back to the eyes again. Remember Jesus taught the eyes, the lamp of the body. Your eyes are connected to your soul, body, soul, an integrated being that He's created. And eyes were created by a creator. Amazing complexity and intricacy and design of the human eye. But eyes are made what? To, to look up and down, side, side to side, and straight away. Eyes were not, your human eyes in your head were not made to look inward and were not made to look backward. Are you with me? Straight ahead, that's usually good. Side to side, straight up and down, but not inward and not backward. So I want to give you today, as we round toward, uh, I guess we're about at shortstop right now, I want to give you three things flowing out of seeing in this story of Peter about you serving. The first one is this, is that we are chosen to serve. 1 Peter 2, if you open your Bible, I'll reward you with that by looking down now. If not, cheat, cheat is up here on the screens. As you come to Him, Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, you are what? You are chosen and you're precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up 
as a spiritual house, to be what? A holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Many years ago, I was in Europe, and I had the opportunity to visit a, a remote village that was largely a Catholic area. And I'll never forget Father Ryan, an elderly priest. And apparently he had not hung out with a Protestant clergy like me in many, many years. He had questions for me. He asked me, you know, do you believe in God? Yeah. Do you believe in Mary? Yeah, a little differently than the way you do. And he told me about his life and about his ministry. Elderly priest, Father Ryan, he told me that when they're, when, you know, when they're born, he christens them. And when they... Uh, get married, he weds them. And when they are at the end of their life and need that confession, he hears that and pardons them for their forgiveness of their souls. He said, I hatch them and match them and dispatch them. And he asked me what I did. And I like, I don't have anything like that. That's pretty cool there. But I kind of do all the things you do, but probably not as, you know, whatever. And he asked me, do you have priests? You guys don't have priests in your church. Now think about that. Do we have priests? In our church, it's going to be a trick question, so I wouldn't answer out loud unless you really, unless you brought your A game on a cold morning. But do we do we have priests in our church? Hebrews chapter ten, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's over, isn't it? The priesthood. Is over. Jesus comes as a fulfillment of it all, the ultimate sacrifice for sin. When someone sits down at the right hand of God, that's like a pronouncement. Like that's like final. I mean, he said it is finished on the cross, and he is still yet to die, or was dying, and then the resurrection and breakfast on the beach with these guys, and the proclamation that came from women, the first ones to share the gospel. And here we see that Jesus sat down at the right hand. Of God, So are there priests? You see, in ancient Israel, priesthood, was, there was something to it. Uh, there were holy places that only the priest could go to. There were special prayers that only the priest could say. There were sacrifices that only the priest could offer. There was the pronouncement of the pardon of sin that only a priest could utter. There were clothes that only the priest could wear. And Jesus comes and says there's something different now. There is a priest who makes this sacrifice for everyone, all of our sins, once and for all. But yet, be careful how you answer the question because he's called us to be priest. If your Bible is open, go to 9. Uh, we'll have it here. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. There we go again. A holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. If you want a little bit of theology today, we're keeping it basic and simple, but a little bit of theology today, here it is. We believe at Fondren we believe in the priesthood of all believers. Have you ever heard that expression? It's really important to understand in the life of a church. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. Yes, we have staff. Can I tell you, we've got a really good staff team. We have staff, and so in a way we have professionals, but don't fall to the professional amateur ranks because this two-tier system, the priesthood that I talked about in ancient Israel that was pointing to Jesus, this two-track, two-tier system was like the regular people and the priest. And when Jesus comes, He says, I want to really change the two-tier system. It's not two tracks, it's one track where we believe in the priesthood believers. We are all ministers of the gospel. You have been chosen 
to serve. You say, well, Robert, you've really been chosen. No, you have been chosen to serve. Not only are we chosen to serve, but we're gifted to serve. I love this. It's 1 Peter 4.10, and this keeps it simple. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That last word is right there. Just to remind you, if you start you know, strutting your stuff like a peacock and you love your gift and you think, man, your gift is God's gift to everybody and yada, 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 he, he reminds us, man, this is God's grace, right? And I think maybe that's why we're allowed to throw the basketball to the wrong team. Maybe that's why our failures uh, should be redeemed. And maybe in many times why we do fail is it just reminds us every failure of mine, every failure of yours could remind us that we're not that and that we need to be redeemed and we need to look up. And like a well in a water, you know, that's, that, that's where we hang out, but we've got to go above the surface. We've got to look up to the one who gives us life. You're gifted to serve. Here's God's plan. His plan is that the church would bring hope to this world. And His plan, no matter the songs, no matter the sermon, no matter the sanctuary, no matter the, the gym at 9.30. Some people are like, I like the gym, I like the sanctuary. Like, I think we're getting into a big church fight about the two. But anyway, no matter, no matter any of those things, what matters is this, is that God's church would be operated and organized around spiritual gifts. Next week, we'll begin a new sermon series. It's seven weeks in Ephesians. It's called Battle Ready. And we're going to look at I am chosen, I am alive, I am strong, I am gifted. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll look at spiritual gifts. We're asking you, some of you are scared of this, but here's the thing. A seven-week small group, first easy step, non-committal, slide right into it, seven weeks. You'll meet some people that you enjoy. If you want to miss a week, you can miss one week. That's all, just one week. Seven-week study, Battle Ready. And in chapter 4, we will have spiritual gift inventories for you that you can look and begin, you take the test and there's no pass-fail, so everybody passes. You take the test and then people speak into your giftedness. How many of you do the Enneagram? Like you're all over, like you know your number. Yeah, you know, like you're like Taylor over there. Like it's, some people are like religious about it, you know, and all these posts and conversations. I walked, into, I walked up to a few friends the other day. They go to Fauna and I, I couldn't even understand them. They're all up in the Enneagram and throwing numbers and accusing me of being of this number and, and whatever. Um, y'all can probably figure out what number I am. I'm pretty pretty blatant. Anyway, uh, but look, that stuff is, I'm, I'm all about it. It's good stuff, those personality things, but this is different. This is different. God is saying, you have a gift. It's dispensed by His Spirit. So here's the $10,000 question. Do you know your gift? Do you know your gift? And here's the thing, I let grace abound. Some of you could be like on stat, you could be around a church a lot, and you're like, uh, you're sitting next to someone, you hope they don't ask you what your gift is because you kind of forgot to do that. But do you know your gift? Do you know it? Look at what um, Paul, a cohort of Peter and Jesus would say in 1 Corinthians 12, that I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. every, Every part matters. You know what I've never heard anybody say? I've never heard anybody say, oh, I've got, a, I've got a splitting, I've got a migraine, I've got a heavy migraine, headache. Oh, but my back feels great. You never do that, will you? The body, it's a unit. It's a unit. And if there's something working well, but if your feet aren't working, guess what? You're not going anywhere. And Paul gives this picture, listen, that all of us matter. All of us matter. Every single part of the body. Isn't it fun to think that you have a spiritual gift and we can help you figure it out? Isn't it fun to think that you're a part of the body? Like, I don't know what part, but some of you could be the mouth. You could teach. Uh, you could give encouragement. Uh, some of you could be the ear, you, you listen. 
Some of you could, you could be the hands or the heart or the feet. Some of you could be the spine, like you have courage and we're around you and we draw courage from you. By the way, what do you call that part on your body that uh, really doesn't belong there and it sucks life out of your body? Like it literally draws nourishment from your body and doesn't contribute to your body at all? Starts with a P, it is a parasite. It's a parasite. And here's the thing. God has designed His church to be led by leaders. And people who lead have the gift of leadership. And people who teach have the gift of teaching. And people who shepherd have the gift of shepherding. And people who uh, have hospitality have the gift of hospitalizing people. People who have the gift of greeting greet people, right? People who have the gift of administration administrate people. There's gifts and you have one and we're part of a body and it doesn't work. It doesn't work if we don't do our part. And so in love, I'm saying today, don't be a parasite. Contribute. Contribute something. If this is the body that God has called you to, contribute here. You have been chosen, chosen to serve. You have been gifted to serve. Uh, I was, you're a part of the body. I was with someone a couple of weeks ago. He was talking to me and he said, man, I'm the elbow because I jab people. And I'm like, yeah, you do jab people. And I started looking at my watch trying to jab him out of my office. Third thing, as we round toward home, when you serve, you're chosen to serve, you're gifted to serve. And when you serve, here's a promise I'll give you every time because it's from Jesus. When you serve, it changes you. Here's a photo of a woman that I've come to admire because I read about her. Uh, a couple of weeks ago. This is uh, Inda Yoni, and she is from India. And she grew up in a part of India where there was a, a hierarchy, a caste system in her uh, region. It was a, j- women just were not empowered to think of their potential, their p- contribution and their greatness. It was severely limited, but she had, she had a, she had a, she had a, a mom who with her and her sister would read to them when they were young, and when they got a certain age, she would require them each night to write a a story or an essay. And a lot of times it was uh, about their potential, uh, having them dream and write about it and share it in a family setting about going on to contribute something great to the world, about being a world leader or a president or a prime minister or something like that. And in this memoir that I was reading recently, she tells the story about what happened in her life. She, uh, some of you may recognize or know this story, but she went on to become the president of Pepsi. Isn't that cool? And she tells in her memoir the when it was revealed, she was voted, there were candidates, and she was at the top, and she won the vote, and she became the president of Pepsi. And she says she went home to her house here in America, and as she went in, her mom had, was visiting from India, as was her custom frequently, and she walks in the door, and she goes, Mom, hey, I got some news. And her mom's like, hey, you know, we need some milk. Run and get some milk. Mom, I got some milk. Hey, I, I don't know, just get some milk. We really need some milk. And she says, I asked Raj to get the milk. She's like, I'm not his mom. I'm your mom, and we need to run and get some milk real quick, and we'll, t- we'll talk when you get home. She goes and gets some milk. She comes home. She's fuming at that point, and she's got the milk. And she said, you know, Mom, here's what I was going to tell you. I just became the president of Pepsi, but oh, no, i got to go get some milk. And her mom, she says her mom says to her, hey, when you walk through those doors, you're a mom and your wife and your daughter, just like Raj is a, a husband and a father and a son. Leave your, leave your crown in the garage. And how wonderful is it? Hear me now. In a world that's divided and broken and hurting, in a world where spiritual nearsightedness has blinded us, 
Jesus is a man who came, who humbled himself to become obedient to death. He lived as a slave. Anybody confused about that? Jesus came and became a man. And he lived as a slave, a dishonored slave, to be clear. And Jesus gave it up and left his crown in the garage. And Jesus picked up the milk. And when you and I serve, when we do, we attune and align our hearts to where to God and who He is. It's not your accomplishments. It's not the bitter jealousy and vainglory that you're living for. It is investing yourself in the lives of other people. You're chosen to serve. You're gifted to serve. And when you serve, it changes you every single time. I'm going to welcome... Jennifer and Bethany and the team to come up now as we transition. In Matthew 5, remember what you learned or were minded of today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Can you say that along with me together in stereo? Uh, I'll say it one more time, then you join me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Can you say it with me? Blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. Jesus, that's Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Later, in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the end of time. He talks about people that serve and don't serve. People that do what He says and don't do what He says. And He talks about a life well lived, live your life in such a way that you will hear, well done, good and faithful what? Servant. That you lived your life for others. For we, Ephesians 2, for we, we're going to get there in a few weeks. We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Not to acquire good things, but to do good works. And Jesus tells the parable, this story, he relates it to the end of the time. As one writer says, I believe this to be true. Look, it's only grace that gets us in the kingdom. Only grace. But you know, there are rewards for those upon entry. And what we weave in time, we wear in eternity. Susan and I are beginning more and more to think about the money that we give, the time that we invest, the lives that we touch, the way we serve. And here's the funny thing, the terrible thing about me. I'll make a confession at the end of this sermon. Sometimes I serve and I do something that nobody notices, and doesn't that hurt? Like I, not long ago, I emptied out the dishwasher, and nobody noticed. And I told her, I told her what I did. I said, I did it, babe. I didn't have to. I did that. I did that act of service. Could you post it? Get a picture. I'll go reenact and post it so people can see that I did it. And here's what I want to say. Some of the happiest people I know are not seeking attention. They're discovering their gift and they're deploying it for the good of other people. And Jesus said, by the way, let me finish. So these people in this story were like, wait, whoa, Jesus. I hope we're not like the successful people that have been living life, you know, climbing the ladder. And then we discovered our ladders leaning against the wrong wall. And Jesus tells stories about those who need food and those who need clothing and those who are in prison who need to be visited on and on and on, the least of these. And they're like, when do we, hey, Jesus, when, when did we see you? When did we, when did we see you? He says, in them. In them. We see Jesus. We see God in others. And time and time again, it's going to be in the least of these. Would you stand with me? Father, bless this time of singing and this invitational time. Lord, with open altars, 
ministers down front to embrace, to pray over. Lord, I pray that you would be honored in this time. This is your time, God. And we want to be your people. You come today as we sing. If we could pray for you, embrace you, the altar really is open if you want to come and kneel. Pray for God to do work in your life or someone that you love. If God is breaking your heart for something. Um, I got to pray for a young lady. Uh, God calling her in, uh, into foster care. And how beautiful that is to see God break in hearts to serve, to serve Him. You come today if we can pray.